have somebody I want to introduce you. Calipex, come on up. So I want to introduce you. You don't even know what you're clapping for yet, but I'll tell you, it's a good thing. This is the Calipex. This is Nate and Elena and Tia and then an unknown baby that's coming in about a month, okay? But um, guys, I want to introduce you to our newest staff member here at DOXA. Nate is going to be joining our staff team, and the whole family is going to be moving here like the first week of June. And so as we've been in this place where, you know, God has just allowed us to send out a team to Osaka, Japan to start a church, as Lord willing, in a couple weeks we're going to send out some more of our friends to start a new church and a salt company at, uh, Ann Arbor, in at Ann Arbor. Um, we have a big need as the church family is growing and Nate is going to come in and he's going to kind of primarily be taking over like equipping and leadership development and he's going to be doing some teaching on, on Sundays, which he's going to be doing today. But this is a couple that kind of grew up in Salt Company. They love Jesus. They love people. They're not just extremely gifted, but they're extremely loving. And I know that as we've been like just going through this process and praying, God, who would be the next person to join us here? Having Nate here and Elena and the whole family, she is adorable, right? It's like no one's even listening to me. It's like, right? But so they're here today, and then they're going to be moving here officially in like two months. And so if you see them today in the lobby, make sure you say hey. But give it up for the Calipex and welcome them. Yeah, good morning, Doxa. Good to be with you. Um, I'm not, yeah, I'm not as cute as Tia is, but that's all right. We're going to do this thing together. We're, we're in the, the Genesis series. So Genesis 33 through 35, you got a Bible. Um, guys, we're, we're so excited to be here with you. Been praying for you guys, been thinking about you. I've got to like subtly be at a couple of Doxa things. Some of you guys from the, the Doxa Men's Conference are like, I think I met that guy. I don't remember him, but I think I met him. That, I was, I was kind of under the radar. I had like accepted the job. But I couldn't tell anyone yet. So um, seriously, we're, we're excited to come and be a part of what God has already been doing in and among you. I mean, looking out, I, I know I don't know most of your stories, but I know that God has been growing you and changing you and helping you be more the men and women he's made you to be as you've, as you've gathered to hear the word as you've gotten to community. Maybe some of you have been around Christianity for a long time, but you're, you're seeing in yourself growth and life that you've never experienced before. That's not because doxa is something special or like the people on stage are something special, but because our God is good and gracious to people like us, amen? So we're gonna get to know each other better over time, but, but it's just my pleasure today to open up God's word with you and see what he has for us as his people. Starting out though, can I, um, I wanna tell you a little bit about myself. Um, I, I have an uncomfortable confession to make with you, okay? But we're going to get to know each other, and so I'm like, all right, I've got to be real. I've got to be up front right away. I have, a, I have an irrational fear of chickens. Okay, don't laugh because I'm like actually afraid of chickens, right? But, and I get that you don't relate to that, but let, let me, I mean, here's what happened one time. We, we had some friends who had like chickens in the backyard because they're kind of crunchy and urban and whatever, and... Um, <laughs> And they needed us to close the coop one night because they were out of town. And they're like, listen, Nathan, it's not that big of a deal. The chickens put themselves to bed. You just close the coop and it'll be fine. And so I go over that night and, and the coop door is closed somehow and the chickens are all roosted outside of the coop. And I, when I say it's a fear, I mean it's a real fear because like my heart started pounding and my palms were sweaty. And I, like, I'm, I'm looking at these chickens like I, I'm like I'm dealing with velociraptors in the backyard and I have to, because they... 
maybe are velociraptors, I don't know, but, but I, have to, I have to psych myself up to deal with these chickens. And so I'm like pacing around their backyard and their neighbors are like, who's this guy that's off his meds this morning? Like, what's going on? But I, I, I have to psych myself up to go pick up these chickens and they're flapping their wings because I don't know how to handle chickens because I don't want to handle chickens to, to shove them into their coop. And it was, a, it was an ordeal. I, okay, got off my chest. I feel better now. Thank you. And I get none of you can relate to that. None of you are like, wow, man, yeah, me too. The struggle is real. Okay, that's fine. What, I have a different fear maybe that, that you can relate to a little bit more. We're, we're talking a little bit about fear this morning. Someone say fear. Okay, I'm going to do this thing where I say someone say, and you are somebody, so talk to me, okay? Someone say fear. We, we've, we've heard about fear in this guy Jacob's life, but in, in our text today, we're going to see a particular thread of fear in his life that I think, again, it's more relatable than the fear of chickens, although if that's you and you want to talk later, like we can empathize. Something called the, the fear of man. Have you guys heard of that? It's this fear, I, I was dealing with it this week, even thinking about coming to, to talk to you. The fear of man is what the Bible calls this complex we get where, where people's thoughts and opinions weigh too much in our heart of hearts. It's like there's a scale inside of us and, and it's tipped towards what somebody might think of you, the way they might judge you or perceive you, the reputation you have. And this works sort of positive or negative, right? Sometimes the fear of man is, I'm worried that people are looking down on me. Or what are they going to think about me? Like, negative, they see all my faults and flaws. And other times we build up a a, a puffed up confidence because we think people think we're kind of a big deal. Either way, it's the scale in our heart that's been tipped towards what people might think of me or, or what I think they might think of me. Again this week, I'm like, all right, we're just getting introduced. Here you go. Go preach. Have fun. And don't worry what people think of you. Yeah, right, right? But maybe you had that when you were considering what to wear to church this morning. And you know it's so dumb because no one really cares, whatever, but you took that extra look in the mirror because you're like, well, what are they going to think? I mean, I put on this like old ratty shirt and my wife is like, you're wearing that this morning? Like, okay, I'll put a sweater over That's fine. Or maybe it was during the meet and greet time. And you're like, okay, how do I not be weird when I'm meeting someone I don't know? And is it going to be weird if no one talks to me? Like, am I going to be weird if I talk to them or if I don't talk to them? What's going to happen there? And so the, the whole couple minutes there is torture for you because you're freaked out about what people might think about you. Maybe it showed up this week when, when a spouse, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, even, even a boss, a coworker, like they said something, they did something, and you knew you should have spoken up. Like you knew God was kind of prompting you in that moment, hey, you should, you got to step into that. And, and you were a little bit too afraid of what, what they might think. And so you didn't. No, not this time. It wasn't the right moment. It wasn't the right time. Maybe there is a, is a background soundtrack in your life where other people's opinions of you have turned up way too loud. And it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not a Christian this morning. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you, you get what I'm talking about. You might not call it fear of man. That's kind of a Bible term. But you understand what it's like to have the background soundtrack of your whole life be, man, what do people think of me? Am I standing or falling based on people's perceptions of me today? Whether it's what I say or how I say it or what I wear. Am I smart enough? Am I good enough? Am I strong enough? Whatever. You've even managed and manipulated relationships in your life to try to get the outcome of, of that person thinking better of you, or at least your friends thinking you're not a chump. Well, I broke up with her. No, 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 I broke up with her. Like, don't worry about it. That was me. That was my choice. Some of you guys are like, oh, that was, 
this week. Okay, great, cool. I don't know your story this morning, but I, I would put money on the fact that you have this thing out of whack in your heart called the fear of man. And there's something natural about it where God designed us to be relational. Like he designed us to be in relationship with other people. There's, there's something good about that, but it's something good put in the wrong place. Something good from God relating and, and engaging with other people, but, but turned up to the wrong volume where it overwhelms who God has designed you to be. How do people like us fight the fear of man? Like what hope is there for people like us to fight the fear of man? Because let me tell you, it's like a cancer inside of you. You can't just ignore it and hope it goes away. It, it begins to grow and eat you from the inside out. And it doesn't only affect you, it actually affects the people around you. Maybe in ways that you don't have the wisdom or the courage to recognize. It's compromising relationships in your life. It's stealing your joy and it's, it's not allowing you to be everything God has made you to be for the people he's put you around. How do people like us fight the fear, man? We're going to go to the Bible and find out today. Open your Bibles, Genesis 33 through 35. As you're flipping there, um, if, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Genesis is the first book. Table of contents is your best friend. Um, chapters are the big numbers versus little numbers. We'll be in three chapters today. You guys have been trucking through Genesis, so you're taking big, big sections of it. And right now, we're, we're at the last part of Jacob's life where he's kind of the main character of the story. He's going to be all through the end of Genesis, but this is the last section where he's sort of center stage. After this section, his sons kind of take center stage. He's still there, but he, he's along for the ride. And you saw last week this incredible moment where he wrestles with God. He finally admits and acknowledges what his name is, and God begins to give him a new name, a new identity, and he walks with a limp after that. So how is this guy, after this incredible moment wrestling with God, how is he going to be transformed and changed? especially with these core fears and struggles in his heart and life. Let's find out. Genesis 33, starting in verse 1. He's just wrestled with God, and now he's heading towards meeting his twin brother, who last time he saw him was, was threatening to murder him. Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau, his twin brother, was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, Leah with her children, Rachel, and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. He sees this army coming towards him, these 400 guys with his brother, who again is trying to kill him in his mind. The last time he saw him some 20 years ago, he, his brother's breathing out threats and murder. Now he has a gang with him. He has a posse. So the thoughts going through his mind is, it's over for me. He just had an incredible moment with God, but the reality in front of him right now isn't what God had just done. It's the fear in front of him. You see that? But the fear exposes something in him. It exposes favoritism in him. That, that's a whole other sermon there, but, but just one thing I want you to see really quick is fear exposes what's kind of already in you, the other threads of sin in your heart and life. And so maybe as you're considering the fear of man stuff, maybe other sins or struggles are attached to that. In Jacob's life, we see lying and manipulation over and over. Maybe there's something else that, that you've been looking at one sin and you're trying to deal with. And I, I don't know who this is for this morning, but you've got a particular sin in your life you've been trying to fight for a little while. And as you've been going after that, you're not, you're not sure if you're seeing victory. But maybe, maybe there's actually a deeper root of the fear of man, and that's a symptom of it. Okay, we'll keep going. He sees his brother coming, and he is scared, and he has real reason to be afraid. 
part of the problem with the fear of man is actually there, there's often real reasons why we should be scared. Like if I, if I do speak up, maybe I'll lose my job. If I do speak up, maybe that person will view me differently. Real consequences might happen. There, there's real weight on that side of the scale. So, so what happens here? Verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. When he thinks that he's going to be attacked and, and killed by his brother, his brother runs to meet him and loves him and hugs him, and he kisses him, and he's crying. Like these twins have been separated for 20 years, and his brother's just stoked to see him again. In fact, this description, one commentator said, this looks a lot like when Jesus described the, the prodigal son, the father running to meet him and hugging him. Maybe Jesus, when he told that parable in the back of his mind, had Esau running to come reconcile with Jacob. This is amazing. In, in place of all of his fear of his brother going to hurt him, his brother wants relationship and wants to come back and be united. Verse 5, when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? Like he, he hasn't even had time to consider who's with him. His, his eyes have been locked on his brother who he's been missing and longing for to be close to. Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Now that sounds really humble, Right? That's kind of like, oh, God has been gracious and kind. It's kind of churchy language, but you'll notice something really weird happens here. Esau keeps trying to draw him close and speak like they're brothers and speak in a familiar way, and Jacob keeps, Jacob keeps holding him kind of formally at a distance. As it keeps going, you'll see Jacob keeps saying, oh, my Lord, I'm your servant. Oh, whatever, I'm so pious. Whatever. But he, he holds his brother at a distance when his brother's trying to pull him close. Keep, keep reading and we'll see this happen. Verse six, then the servants drew near. They and their children and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And then Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. The favorites come last. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. He wants his brother back. He doesn't want all this stuff his brother has. He just wants relationship. Like, I don't need that stuff. I've got a posse. I've got a crew. I'm doing good, man. Like, keep your stuff. I just want you. Verse 10, Jacob said, no, please, if I, if I found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you've accepted me. Did you, did you guys hear that? It's the sound of a butt getting kissed, right? I mean, oh, like the face of God. No, you, dude, you just wrestled with God. Like your brother doesn't look like God, but he's, he's throwing all the language he can to try to make it seem like, oh, I honor you, I respect you, I whatever. But, but really, he fears him. He doesn't love him. He's not trying to meet him on the terms of, of love and reconciliation. He doesn't want relationship. He just wants protection. It's like seeing the face of God. Verse 11, please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt gracious with, graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Now, Jacob shows us his real heart motivation in here. I don't know if you caught that in verse 11. Someone say blessing. A big part of the story of Jacob and Esau is the fact that God promised Jacob a blessing before he was born. But Jacob and his mom spent years trying to wrestle that blessing out. They didn't take up God's faithful promise. They didn't see God's faithfulness. They worked hard to try to get their own agenda in there. So he, he's kind of cheating. He's showing his real motivation when he says, hey, my blessing that is brought to you, the blessing I took from you, the blessing I cheated and lied and stole from you. Yeah, yeah, you can have some of that back if I can just bribe you off. When the fear of man is ruling your heart, a gift isn't a gift anymore. 
A compliment's not a compliment anymore. It's not, it's not an overflow of generosity. It's a bribe. So even something that looks good and pious on the surface, the root is, is twisted. He has to urge Esau to take it, so he, he takes it. Verse 12, then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows the children are frail. The nursing flocks and the herds are a care to me. If they're driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant. I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, the pace of the children until I come to my Lord at Seir. Now Jacob has taken them from like Mesopotamia, modern day Iraq, all the way to Israel. He knows how to move with herds and stuff, but he's saying, oh, no, 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 we can't keep up with you. You go, I'll catch up later. It'll be fine. This pattern of lying that's been in him since he was a young boy shows up when he's still afraid and when he's out of power. Yeah, yeah, I'll catch up with you later. Don't worry about it. So verse 15, so Esau said, well, let me leave some of my people who are with me. Like you just complained that it's gonna be hard. Let me help you. I just wanna help you get, get with me. And he says, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of, the, of my Lord. So he said, return that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth, built himself a house, made booths or tents for his livestock, and therefore named the place Succoth. He, he lies. He holds his brother arm's length, and then he says, yeah, I'll catch up with you. But he goes, and he ends up somewhere else. Verse 18, Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan on his way from Padaram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he pitched his tent. Therefore, he, or there he erected an altar and called it El Eloh Israel. He missed the chance for reconciliation with his brother that was years in the making because his fear of what his brother might do to him or think of him, it stopped him from seeing what was right in front of him. One of the things the fear of man does is it stops us from having reconciliation because when someone's opinion weighs too heavy in our hearts, we're either over-elated when they think well of us or we think they think well of us or we're too crushed when they don't give us what we're, we're desiring from them. Approval, value, a false sense of peace. And Maybe you grew up in a household where if mama's not happy, no one's happy. And so you learned how you treat people and you handle relationships, whether it's freezing people out or blowing up. You learn some patterns of trying to get what you want, but it's not reconciliation. It's, it's overvaluing, overweighing in your heart what people think. Again, Jacob missed out on the chance, decades in the making of reconciliation with his twin brother. And at the end, he's starting to see, okay, God has brought me safely here, but at what cost? And we're actually going to see something even worse happens because he wouldn't listen to his brother or take his brother's advice or take his brother's help. He didn't ask, hey, where should I settle here? Where should I be? He's coming to a new land with a lot of kids and flocks and all this stuff and he's just going to drop his tent somewhere that feels far enough away to feel safe from his brother but he's going to step out of that fear into a worse danger. Look at verse, or chapter 34, verse 1. This is a horrible, tragic story. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. 
So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. This is awful. This is horrible. And, and in this particular couple verses, it's, the story's going to fly on, but we see that, that the way Jacob should have responded, the ways his son responded, is saying, that is evil. That is not right. You don't treat people that way. If you're new to the Bible, you might be shocked to see things like that. You've heard like, yeah, Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, that's cool, but the Bible is, is very real about the evil in our world. It's not blind to tragedy. Yeah, and let me just say, if, you, if you've suffered through being mistreated like this, I'm so sorry. God is not blind to your pain. God is not blind to what you've been through. We're going to see a story of this playing out really poorly for their whole family, but, but there is hope and there's reconciliation and, and God is not blind to the suffering of his people. Jacob's daughter is assaulted and her assaulter says, hey, I love her. What, I just want to marry her now. It, it's horrible. Verse five, how does, how does her father respond when this poor girl is attacked and assaulted? Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with the livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Really? Held your peace? Are you kidding me? You're not gonna say anything? Like, in his heart, in his mind, he's going, okay, there, there's a whole city there, my sons aren't with me, I don't know how to stand, but, but his fear of the people, his fear of what they could do to him or whatever stopped him from saying anything about his daughter being assaulted. And in fact, we're going to see she's being held captive in the city. He's not even going to demand that she comes back to her family. He holds his peace. I don't know how, as a father, you do that unless there's something really out of whack in your heart. Something twisted and rotten from the inside. He, he holds his peace. In verse 6, Hamor, the son of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob came in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. It is clear as day that this man has sinned and sinned royally, this is awful, and the sons, the sons are feeling what they really should feel. They're furious at this. They're, they're sister, they want to fight for her and avenge her, but, but listen to me, their dad is not leading the charge. This is a chance for him as their father to, to shape that anger to be something more righteous, to steer his family in a direction towards God's justice, but he has already demonstrated a pattern of silence because of the fear of man in his heart. Verse 8. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us. Take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Where the son wants Dinah for his wife, the father wants their stuff, wants to offer just a, a financial bargain, he doesn't see the pain that his son has caused. He's just looking at the flocks and the herds that Jacob and his sons have, and, and he's trying to find a way to get that from them. Make a deal with us. 
Verse 11, Shechem also said to, to her father, to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for a great bride price and gift as you will and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The audacity of these men to sin against the family like this, to sin against Dinah like this and say, hey, hey, we'll pay you off for this. Don't worry about it. We just want to make relationships with you. Verse 13, the sons of Jacob answered, Now catch that. Jacob didn't answer. Jacob didn't speak up for his family. His sons answer for him. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. When Jacob, as their father, isn't setting the table and setting the agenda for how you respond, when his fear has overwhelmed him so he can't lead his family, his sons go back to the old family script. Like, they learned this from their dad, right? He was doing this just the chapter before when he met his brother. When you're afraid of people, when they have too much weight in your heart and mind, then you lie and you manipulate and you twist the truth to try to get power. However you can, you you twist the truth to try to get power and control in the situation. If you're afraid of people, then you've got to find some way to dominate and control, even if you don't physically have that ability. That's what they learned from their dad. They answered deceitfully, and it's an old family script that they've been playing. Verse 14, they said to them, we cannot do this thing, to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. Someone say circumcised. No, just kidding. Don't say that. Okay. (laughs) For that would be a disgrace to us. Not disgraceful what you've done, disgraceful if if you don't get circumcised here. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you'll become as we are, and every male among you be circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, We will take your daughters to ourselves. We will dwell with you, become one people. But if you'll not listen to us and be circumcised, and we'll take our daughter, we'll be gone. Again, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening here. For one thing, the sons are answering and saying, our daughter, because the dad isn't speaking up. He's abdicated his leadership and responsibility. And and in their place, they're, they're giving this strange bargain. They're saying, okay, if you want, if you want to be to be married into our family, if you want to do this stuff, you have to be circumcised. They're deceiving, and they're actually going to use that as an opportunity to attack and to kill the men of Shechem. This would be like if you were saying, hey, I, I want to have a business deal with you. I want to have a contract, but listen, you've got to get baptized. I'm sorry, if you don't get baptized, we can't have this deal. And then while they're getting baptized, you hold them under until they drown. Or it would be like if saying, hey, we need to reconcile. We, we haven't been at peace. Like, man, your, your dog has been barking, and you've been terrible neighbors, but we, we're going to reconcile. Let's do this. Let's take communion together. You go first, and then you like poisoned the, the bread and the juice. It would be that level of kind of crazy thing. God gave them as a family this sign of circumcision to show his promise, to show his faithfulness, to show his goodness to them. Passed down generation to generation, it marked God's people as special and set apart. And they're using this important symbol. They've twisted it to attack and to assault the city. When the fear of man rules our hearts, we can't see things for what they are, whether it's relationships or whether it's a beautiful gift and sign from God, they're twisting it to be something it was never meant to be. But the story continues, verse 18. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. The young man did not delay to do the thing, meaning he went off and circumcised himself, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of the city and spoke to the men of the city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives. Let us give them our daughters. 
Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us, to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the city, the gate of the city listened to Hamor and son Shechem. Every male was circumcised. All went out at the gate of the city. So we see that this financial motivation is the real thing motivating Hamor and his son Shechem. But these guys are like salesmen of the year. Am I right? They're standing at the city gate and going, guys, if you want property, if you want sheep, if you want flocks, if you want daughters, I have the thing for you. It's, it's an incredible deal. You don't have to pay anything. You got to do something, but it's going to be all right. Listen, you only have to do this one little thing and all of this will be yours. You ready for it? Uh, go get circumcised. And imagine the husband going home and being like, honey, I heard of a great deal today. It's awesome. We're going to get all these flocks and property. It's going to be great. And wife's like, wow, that's wonderful. What do you have to do? Uh, it's not that big of a deal. I don't, know. I don't know anyone who's done it, but it doesn't sound that bad. All I have to do is get circumcised now. Like, how did they convince an entire town to do this, right? That's crazy. Some of you are not as surprised about this as I am. I, I don't know any grown men that have been circumcised. That sounds horrible to me. That's fine. All right. Somehow they convince all of the people in the city to get circumcised. They win salesmen of the year. And verse 25, on the third day when they were sore, understatement, two of the sons of Jacob, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, again, the text is, is emphasizing brothers, not father, her brothers have to fight for her. Her brothers took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. Again, she was, she was probably in captivity, stuck in the city the whole time. They rescue her. The sons of Jacob come, came upon the slain and plundered the city because they defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, whatever was in the city, in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, all their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. This is a, a dramatic reversal. Whereas the city of Shechem was trying to plunder them and take everything they had, actually it's reversed on them. They're the ones killed and plundered. But the Bible is not advocating this. It's not saying this was right or this was a good thing to do. It's showing what happens when we let the root of the fear of man fester in our lives, in our hearts, and affect the people around us. But again, in dramatic fashion, the city that wants to plunder them gets plundered themselves, and all the men are killed. How does Jacob respond to his sons doing this? He's watched his sons go back into the city. He's watched smoke rise. He's watched his sons go in and, and take everything out. How is he going to respond to his sons? Verse 30, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. How selfish is he? My numbers are few, and if they gather against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Again, the fear of man, the, the scales balanced in his heart point towards himself and not towards justice for his poor daughter, but his fear of what people might do in retribution. You've made me stink to the people of the land. What, what about me? What's going to happen to me? Now, this is a man who has wrestled with God. This is a man who's received God's promise. This is a man who God has shown up for over and over and over again but the cancer in his heart had been festering where he couldn't see God's faithfulness. He could only see his fear. His son's answer, verse 31, they said to him, should he treat our sister 
like a prostitute. The dead doesn't have an answer for him. I think he was probably ashamed in that moment. I think his son's coming out probably sweaty and with blood on him saying, Dad, are you going to let him treat our sister like a prostitute? I wonder if that exposed in him how out of whack his heart had been this whole time. What do we do with stories like this? Like, What do we do with people like this? Why would God write this kind of story into his word for generation after generation to read and see? I think we've got to see how God treats people that are bound up, wrapped up in the fear of man because that helps us understand how God treats people like us. The family drama and and craziness going on here, I, I hope there is nowhere near that level in your life, but I'm sure, I'm sure if we sat down and talked about it, we could trace some roots to the fear of man in your life and how it's been poisoning relationships, how it's been cutting off joy, how you've been longing to hear God's voice and his direction, and yet in your heart of hearts, the scale has been tipped towards what other people might think or do. And in a real way, Jacob was afraid of of genuine consequences of what people could do. But he'd forgotten what God had already done. So how does God treat a man like this? Chapter 35, verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from brother Esau. God is reminding him, Hey, you've been through some stuff and I was with you. That when you were fleeing from your brother, when you were afraid of being killed, I was with you. I showed up for you. So Jacob said to his household, all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves, change your garments. Let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may make an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I've gone. As I was studying this, I, don't, I didn't know if Jacob was being honest and authentic there, if he was putting on a front for his people. But I wonder if at this point of his story, he's starting to see a pattern. Even with all the chaos and carnage that just happened, he's starting to see a pattern. Wait a second, God, is, God has been with me. God has been faithful to me. He has been with me wherever I've gone. Look at verse four. They gave to Jacob all the foreign gods they had, the rings that were in their ears. These rings probably had statues of, of idols. They had taken them with them from, from Mesopotamia all the way here that carried false gods with them. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And they, as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. God is showing up in his faithfulness to Jacob. Even when, when Jacob is afraid of the people around, God shows up and makes these people that could attack them afraid of Jacob and his whole household. Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him, and, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called it its name Elon Bukoth. And God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padaran and blessed him. God blesses Jacob. This messed up, fear of man controlled guy, God bends to bless him. That's, that's frustrating to me a little bit. That annoys me. That gets under my skin. Like, God, are you going to bless a man like that? Are you going to show up for a man like that? Even look at this. God is going to reinstate his name and all of the promise, all of the blessing. Verse 10, God said to him, your name is Jacob. 
No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Reinstating the promise, the new name he got just chapters before. He called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation, a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. And God went up from him in the place where he would spoken to him. Just like he did before at Bethel, where, where he goes up. God goes up from him, reminding him that God is there. And Jacob set up a pillar in that place where he'd spoken to him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken to him, Bethel. God bends to bless him with extravagant covenant promises. Like the covenant promise to Abraham and to Isaac go to Jacob, this colossal failure. He's a complete failure, Right? Like, after everything God did to him, his response is failure. Again, I'm frustrated with that a little bit. I kind of want God to treat him differently. Like, God, look at all of the the damage he's caused, the hurt in his life, the hurt in people around. Really? You're going to bless him? Yeah. Because God's, God's blessing, God's promise wasn't contingent on how well Jacob could do. It was based on God's faithfulness. And listen to me, that's really good news for people like me and people like you. Because if we read this story and go, hey, Jacob was a screw-up, don't be a screw-up, have a great Sunday, right? That's bad news. And I think it would do two things in us. I think, one, it would make us less capable of actually admitting the fear that we have. If I say, just go try, to, try hard to not be like Jacob, I think we'd be less free to confess where we do screw up. We'd be less free because we'd be so busy trying to prove that we're good enough or or we become self-deceived, or we try to build up a, a false confidence in how well we're doing and we would lie to ourselves. Everyone else around would see it, but we'd be lying to ourselves that we don't have the fear of man. If our answer is just don't be like Jacob, we are, we're in a hopeless and helpless place. It's like saying, hey, just pretend you don't have cancer. It'll work out one day. And Jacob had real things to fear. People were coming to get him, at least he thought so, There's potential for his whole family to be wiped out. But he starts to see at the end of the story God's faithfulness and actually the fact that there's something much bigger to fear. See, the way that we fight this fear of man scale thing in our hearts is is not by trying to just fear people less. Because then you start going like, hey, just be confident. Just be yourself. You're doing great. And it's like, well, what is it? Should I be confident or should I be myself? Because I don't know how to do the two of them, right? Like, if we just try to apply the solution to ourselves and look at ourselves and take, take things off of that, that part of the scale, it's, it doesn't end up working. We have to lie to ourselves to get there. We need something on the other side of the scale, something more weighty, something heavier to balance that out. The Bible has an answer for us and it calls it the fear of the Lord. Someone say fear again. The fear of the Lord is a description of really understanding and getting God in his holiness and power and beauty and faithfulness. The fear of the Lord is taking God seriously for who he really is. And part of who he really is on display in this passage is his faithfulness. Listen to me, Doc. So the way that you fight the fear of man is with the faithfulness of God. You fight the fear of man with the faithfulness of God. You look at the scales in your heart and go, yeah, people will judge me and have opinions of me, but when I look back at God, this God 
has brought me through everything. This God has promises for me. He has hope for me beyond myself, beyond what anyone could do for me. Because we we really do have something to fear, and it's not just people. It's God himself. Like the God of the universe is the final judge. People might judge you and look down on you in this life, but when you stand before God, you will give an account. Jacob gave an account. I will give an account, and so will you. For every careless word, for every time we put people's opinion in the place that God should be, for the damage that we've caused in our lives. And listen, it's not Jacob's fault that his daughter was assaulted. It's not Jacob's fault that his sons went and attacked the city, but it is his fault that he put his family there. It is his fault he didn't lead out there, and he will give an account for that. We will give an account before a holy God, and listen, you will be found wanting. That's bad news. But this faithful God looks at people like you and me, and he offers us hope. Jesus walked through life free of the fear of man. If you've read about his life, you've watched him be misunderstood. His motives were twisted. Like people, people looked at him and they did not get him at all, but he walked perfectly following the will of the Father. In relationship with God, wherever that took him, and ultimately that took him to a mistrial, a horrible miscarriage of justice and murder on the cross. Jesus on the cross took the thing that you and I should actually be afraid of, the judgment of a holy God. That's where walking perfectly in the fear of the Lord took him. And he rose in victory, showing that he had more life to give broken and messed up people like you and me. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, not the people that were working hard enough to prove they were good enough for God. Ephesians 2 says, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, spiritually dead and cut off from life, that's when Jesus came to us. That's when Jesus came to people like us. That's when God came to Jacob. Not when he was doing great, but at one of his lowest moments, watching the smoke of Shechem rise, his sons telling him, Dad, you have screwed up. Should you let him treat our sister as a prostitute? That is when God calls him back to his faithfulness. That's what Jesus is offering us. Not just more confidence in ourselves, but actually to radically rebalance the scale in your heart and life where you can have a relationship with a faithful God. A God whose faithfulness goes before you and and through every part of your story and off into eternity. When you stand before God, if you are in Christ, you don't have to fear him. You don't have to worry about his judgment because Jesus took it. You get to worship him and love him and enjoy him. You get to confess your sin because your sin no longer has dominion over you and it's no longer your identity. You have a new name. You're no longer Jacob. You're Israel now. We fight the fear of man with the faithfulness of God. And here's how I think we do that today. I think one of the things we need to do is we need to remember. Someone say remember. Guys, we we are forgetful people, aren't we? Jacob forgot how God had treated him for years in his kindness and faithfulness as soon as he had someone to fear right in front of him. And I am just the same. We need to be a people who remember. And the way that Jacob did that is he set up new pillars, reminding himself of how God had been with him every part along the way. Do you have pillars in your life of God's faithfulness to you? Do you have moments you go back to and say, God answered that prayer. God showed up in his kindness there. God brought hope into this situation there. Do you tell people the story of how you came to know Jesus? 
Like, do you tell it like it's, like it's good news, like it happened to you because it did? Do you love talking about the faithfulness of God, reminding yourself and other people? We need to be a people who remember God's faithfulness. And, and if you feel like you're part of your, in part of your story where you don't know God's faithfulness, you're not sure where he's showing up right now, ask your brothers and sisters in your connection group around you, hey, when has God been faithful to you? Like, when has God been faithful and shown up in your story? I might not know what God is doing right now, but I know him. I know what he is like, and he's a faithful God, even to screw-ups like me. Remember God's faithfulness and remind each other often. I think another thing we need to do, and this is like, you're going to be like, duh, you're a pastor, you're supposed to say that. I think we need to pray. I think we need to start praying into the situations and especially the relationships where we're tempted to fear those people, to put too much weight and stock in what they might think. If Jacob had been praying for his brother in reconciliation, maybe he would have been more ready to be reconciled to him. Maybe he would have been more ready and aware of what God had already been doing in Esau's heart and life. Has God been bringing someone to mind this morning, even as I've been talking? Like a a relationship that you've had brokenness in too long because you've put too much stock in what they think? Or a person where you thought, no, 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 we could never reconcile. Like we could never be back in right relationship and so you've never taken a step. Was there someone you you used to pray for and you kind of stopped? You got tired of it? Like as we pray into those situations, one, God begins to mold our hearts to, to remember his faithfulness and see it, and two, he shows up in reality. God had been working on Esau's heart before Jacob got there, but he just didn't see it. Where would God begin to be working as you cry out to him? Where would he show you his work? Begin praying for your boss, for your kid, for your spouse who refuses to come with you this morning or come to connection group, for the friend in your class that you don't have the courage to share the gospel with yet. The last thing we need to do, we need to memorize God's word. Again, that's another duh pastor thing, but um, I don't have time to tell you the story of how God started stripping the fear of man out of my heart by exposing how much of a failure I really am. But one particular verse locked home my heart and life. It was 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. God said, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more my weakness that the power of God may rest on me. I'm weak, Doxa. Like, as I'm coming to you today preaching, and you're like, well, this guy's on staff. Like, I'm weak, guys. And you're weak too. We put people's opinions in the wrong place in our heart and our life all the time. And God looks at weak people like us and says, you're the exact kind of person I want to use for my glory and my goodness to shine through. We fight the fear of man with the faithfulness of God. What would it look like if this church was awed by God and overwhelmed by the faithfulness of God? What would happen if a group of very normal people like us were captivated by the faithfulness of God? I think we'd experience overflowing joy together. Like your connection group would be a place of of real talk about the hard stuff in life, but also overwhelming joy. I think the gospel would go forward from a place like this because we wouldn't be controlled by what people think or we think they think of us. We'd share freely the good news. I think we'd see relationships restored and redeemed when the world would look and say there's no chance of that happening. Doc said, let's be a people that fight the fear of man with the faithfulness of God. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for the witness of this passage, how faithful you are. Thank you for the moments we get to see you show up in your faithfulness and goodness to failures like Jacob and failures like us. 
God, I confess this morning, I want to prove how good I am, how strong I am, how I've got it together, but at the end of the day, your faithfulness is what counts. And so even now as I'm praying, God, if you're bringing to mind a relationship um, that's not reconciled, or a situation where, where we've been controlled by the fear of people, would you begin to show up in your faithfulness there? Would you show us how you've already been working and would you rebalance the scales in our hearts towards your power and your goodness? And would you crush the fear of man in us that would be free to be the people you're called to be? We love you, Jesus. We praise in your name.